there's some pretty fascinating parts of that text I'm sure um, you picked up and one of the things about Paul going to the uh, third heaven and having a thorn in his flesh and having visions and revelations and then a little bit of boasting. It's quite an interesting passage and I, I want to try to make it relevant where you feel like it's going to uh, be a real help for you. So I want to begin by asking this question. How many people have something in your life right now that you'd like to go away? I, I'm not going to say a, a name. I don't want you to say a name. Just say a difficulty. Okay, and it could be a person. I don't know. So some affliction, some difficulty, some relationship, a debt, a disease, a conflict, an obstacle, a disability a burden that weighs you down. If God told you that He would fix these problems in your life, uh, would you be able to think of three or more immediately? And the apostle had a problem like that and he called it a thorn in the flesh. Three times he begged God to remove it and three times God said no. But instead of getting angry with God, Paul was able to say, Lord, I don't like it, but I understand how you're using it in my life. And that's what I want to challenge you to think about today. And you may say, well, I don't like this part of my life, but I'm beginning to understand why it might be your plan, how you're still loving and kind, and it's not an indicator that you've forsaken me or forgotten me, but it's actually something you want to use in my life. So... The attitude adjustment is what we need, right? Um, instead of going, Lord, get rid of this. And there's nothing wrong with asking that because Paul pleads three times. So there's, there's no negative comment. And you, I don't read anything either that I'm not sure Paul could. I don't think he's like, it could. maybe he could ask a fourth time or a fifth time. Um, but he had already asked three times. And I think at the third time he kind of figured out, I think I need to just surrender to this. So maybe you have something in your life and you've been asking God to um, alleviate it, which is fine. Paul did the same thing. But also maybe God wants you to hold on to it a little longer until you learn something. Maybe He has something He wants for you to learn from it. And that's what would release you from it. Or maybe it's something He wants you to keep holding on to because it's going to have a powerful impact in your life at keeping you close to God. Okay, so the first thing I want to mention is um, I have five simple things I want to talk about, and one is um, more reluctant boasting. I don't think Paul liked it. He said that he was a little bit embarrassed by it, and he said that in the last chapter, and he said, I know it sounds foolish, but if that's what I have to do, I'm willing to be foolish or to look foolish or come across in a way that is not flattering if that's going to help promote the gospel. So Paul was defending his calling. And he speaks in verse 1 about revelations. And he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he's defending his calling is what he's doing as an apostle because there were people back in Corinth undermining his authority and teaching. And if they had succeeded, it's important for us to think that if they had succeeded, it would have thrown doubt upon Paul's writings, which make up a huge portion of the New Testament. 
So our Bible would be missing huge relevant information if somehow these enemies of God hadn't been able to discredit Paul. Thank God that they didn't and thank God that Paul was able to defend his, his calling um, which part of what was to write the, a large part of the New Testament. And there's still people attacking the reliability of the Bible. They always will. And every person has to come to their own decision about who they will listen to. So the Bible's always under attack, and some of the people are real smart, and some of the people are not so smart. Maybe they're just angry or hurt. Or, um, but you have to, you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide if you believe the Bible. You're going to have to ask that question. You can't just follow someone because goes, oh, well, I know a smart person and he's not a Christian. That's a terrible reason not to um, inquire about Christianity. And then it's like, well, my mother and father are Christians, so I'm just going to follow them. That's, not a, that's also a terrible reason. You have to inquire. You have to ask. You have to study and say, well, what are... What are the pros and cons? And then you have to go to God in prayer and you say things like, Lord God, if you're there, you know where I'm at and will you help me and will you hear me? I'm, I'm seriously interested. I really want to know you. I really want to know if you're there. Are you real? And so you have to follow out the inquiry personally. and You can't depend on other people. Um, you can learn from them. You can listen to the objections they might raise. But eventually you have to talk directly to God. You need to read and study the Bible for yourself. Paul had more than a few extraordinary and supernatural experiences with God. And he mentions them at first. He says um, visions and revelations. So Paul received visions of God. And a vision is something you see. So he saw things. Be it in a, um, like a, 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 almost like a, a trance-like state. Where he sees something in front of him. Or it could be... Uh, Asleep, which would be a dream or a vision in that way. A vision could be either one of those two. And Paul had had several of those type of events. And then he had received revelation from God. And revelation, we, really, we actually referred to the Bible as the revelation of God. And God spoke through prophets, spoke to them, and they recorded the word of God or they would speak. So Paul was an outstanding Christian in this alone, that he had visions and revelations from God. And that's one of the reasons we read this book is because we think God has actually spoken to people over history and given us a record of His, of his um, communication. So this book is very dear to us, very dear to a Christian because we believe that God deposited this truth to people who then um, put it together and formulated and gathered all the revelations of God into a book, and this is very important to us. We believe this is God speaking. So, in that regard, Paul's like pretty important. Um, he had these amazing supernatural experiences, is what you would expect from someone claiming to be an apostle of Jesus. And in the earlier chapter, chapter 11, he describes some of the ways he had to suffer for his faith, and that was. Impressive, and now he's telling us that he not only suffered for his faith, he received these direct communications from God and visions and revelations. And there's um, six, maybe seven, recorded in the book of Acts alone where Paul had um, his conversion. He had a vision of God, and um, 
He had a vision of God telling him one time to go to Macedonia, like where to go. He had a vision of God um, telling him that he needed to speak at a certain place and go to certain things. And so God had spoken to Paul through these visions. And he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but if you want to look them up, there's, there's quite a few in the book of Acts. Um, and you can, you can just read through. Um, if you want these, I'll maybe give them to you later. I've got seven from the book of Acts alone. And Acts is the story of the New Testament. And so part of the story of the New Testament is people like Paul, Peter, um, Stephen. Some of these men were having revelations from God. And Paul was one of them. So that's how he says, well, I'm not um, less... I'm not inferior to the other apostles. I've had visions and dreams. But then he tells something that's extraordinary. So number one was more reluctant boasting. Number two is a trip to heaven and back. That's pretty cool. (laughs) As a matter of fact, that's like serious. Um, You remember the, there's been all, there's been movies and stuff like that about people going to heaven and, uh, oh, maybe, I think one book's called 90 Minutes in Heaven, something, Don Piper. There's a, um, what's the little boy who, um, Heaven is for Real in the movie. And then there's been doctors who've done these studies on people who claim to have had some kind of heavenly experience. And I don't know for certain with all those, but I know for certain with this one. Um, I, I believe it's possible because it happened and I don't know enough about some of these stories. I think some of the stories have been like pumped up and then someone says, well, maybe I fudged a little on this or that, but I take this one for real. Um, just totally take it for real. He mentions that he went to heaven 14 years ago, 14 years after he's writing to the Corinthians, which would have been very early in Paul's Christian life before he started out on his missionary journeys. Somewhere there early in his Christian life, he says, well, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And then he says, I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So there's a couple of reasons to believe that this man that Paul knew was Paul. And one of the reasons is, is because Paul is referring to his credentials as an apostle. Like, why would he mention what someone else did if it wasn't his experience? Uh, Another point is, um, is that the way he talks about it, um, it's very personal to him. And it's, it's kind of like, you know how kind of like when a reporter says, I have a source, and they've got this breaking news, and they said, well, we've heard, and what's the first, per, first question someone asked, from who? It's like, well, it doesn't have any credit. It could be an article on the Internet. And so it can, you can easily discredit someone if you can't figure out where the source was. And so I think that was Paul was, Paul wasn't saying... I don't want you to know it was me. I think Paul was just saying, look, I already kind of a little embarrassed about this. And it's just like, I just want to say I, I know a guy. And then it becomes obvious that he's talking about himself. In the same way, I don't know if you know this, but I, I don't think John ever refers to himself in, in the Gospel of John. 
And then he talks about the one Jesus loved. And it's like he feels truly humbled. And I think in some ways Paul is like, look, this is hard enough for, for me just to talk about this. But um, I had this, this experience. And then why does he not know if he really went to heaven or not? If it was like um, a vision or an actual visitation. I, th I think it's because it's like he wasn't entirely sure. But this much is true. It was so real and memorable that it didn't matter. It's like I saw heaven and it was so real that I was either there, I'll just tell you, the experience. You ever wake up from a dream and it takes you a minute to realize it was so real, and it, for a moment, like seconds or whatever, you're like going, whew. Like you're awake, but you're still coming out of this idea of the dream. And in, in the moment of awakeness, it was so real, you're like going, no, that was, that was too real. And Paul had a vision like that, but the feeling that it was a dream never went away it's like no it was always that real 14 years later he goes you know what it was so real it's very possible that I was actually in heaven or my vision of heaven God carried me there spiritually and it might have even been physically that's how um, game changing it was for me and so he makes this mention of this vision. He's never shared this before. And he feels pushed, pushed to have to share that. And he says, I was called up to the third heaven. Well, what's the third heaven? Um, this isn't Mormon heavens where there's different layers. Um, this is using a word that was common for them to use. Like their word for heaven was the same word for sky. And so they would be going, well, the first heaven, that's the one here like earthly heaven, like the sky. The second heaven would be like space. It's like this. when we look up to the heavens, it's like, oh, the, the, the stars and the moon. That would be the second heaven. The first one's like the one right in front of you. The second one's the one you see at night. And the third one, the third heaven, he says, that's the one beyond, which is the real paradise of God where Jesus and God are. And so you don't have to go and read some weird books on the third heavens and it's like oh Christianity is kind of like Mormonism I think it's, no it's not um, not at all the third heaven was just another way of saying the paradise of God the true heaven the dwelling place of God where believers will dwell forever with God and so d don't get all tripped up on that um, there were other guys who had kind of visions like that in the Bible so Paul wasn't the only one his was maybe more, well, I don't know if it was more graphic or not, because um, Daniel had visions of, of God and heavenly things. Ezekiel had visions of God and heavenly things. We know John the Apostle did. And best as I can tell, it messed with them pretty good too. Like they were totally shaken by this vision. And so the, the question becomes, why would God, why would God give Paul such an experience or Ezekiel or Daniel and mostly because they had a mission that was going to be hard 
And they needed an encouragement so great that they could spend the rest of their lives looking forward to what had been revealed to them. You, you, you know when you go to a nice restaurant, the hors d'oeuvre is, is not the meal, right? You, know, you understand that? Some hors d'oeuvres ought to be the meal. Some hors d'oeuvres are better than the meal. Some people order three hors d'oeuvres for a meal. But the purpose of an hors d'oeuvre is to get you ready for the meal. And earth is the hors d'oeuvre. And you get a little taste, but heaven is the, the meal. And I feel like God gave him this special deposit of hope and reality because he was going to go through some hard, hard times as a follower of Christ. And that was going to keep him going forward. It's like, I know what I have to go through, but I've seen the future and I can't wait to get there. And I'll go through hell and earth if I have to to get there. I will go through God. I will hold on to you. I will not let go because what I saw is so endearing and special that I'm going to keep going even through whatever this life brings. Okay, so he was more reluctant boasting. Number two is a trip to heaven and back. And number three is weakness and strength are essential for ministry. Weakness, mine, and strength, God's, are essential for ministry. So weakness and strength are essential for ministry. And the weakness is me. The strength is God. You've got to get that right. You're not essential for ministry. God is. Your strength can't do what needs to be done. God can. Apart from God, folks, we're nothing. But with Christ, we can do amazing things through Him and through His strength and giving Him glory. Look at Paul, for example. Paul wanted to do whatever would promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the sake of Christ, he was willing to suffer. For the sake of Christ, he was willing to boast and even be thought a fool. For the sake of Christ, he wanted to talk about his weaknesses in order to make sure that God got the credit for his ministry. Worldly and proud people want you to know how great they are. They want to tell you of their great accomplishments. But true servants of Christ see pride and self-promotion as actually being false and inaccurate. They are convinced that left to themselves, their lives and results would be disastrous. The world sees humility as a weakness. In other words, don't let people run over you. But God sees humility as strength and it's actually reality. In James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, God tells who He chooses. And He says, not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. So if you think you're great, then you're not going to be very useful for God. But if you think God is great, you're going to be very useful for God. In order for Paul to remain useful, he had to remain humble. And pride, conceit, and arrogance destroy the lives of many who attain success in life and even in ministry. Success will kill you if you let it get to your head and you think that you're the cause of it. Paul was certainly successful. He was famous, feared, bold, courageous, enemy number one, to the unbelieving Jesus, uh, 
Jewish leaders and considered a great threat to Roman cities throughout the empire. And on top of that, he received revelations and visions that far exceeded anything anyone else had experienced at that particular time. It would have been easy and natural for him to be proud and feel superior to other Christians. So in order to keep him humble and useful, God gave him a thorn in his flesh. So as a note, if you have all the answers, God can't use you. If you believe that you are essential to success, then God can't use you. If you believe that you have built a great ministry, then God will remove you and tear down what you built. If you constantly believe that you need the microphone or the spotlight or the stage and that you could do a far better job than others, if you are always critical of others, then God cannot use you. Humility is the doorway to grace. And grace is essential, the essential ingredient to ministry. Whenever success, whatever success you have been able to enjoy, believe that it is in spite of you, not inside of you. It is due to the favor of God upon you, not the brilliance and might coming out of you. This is so helpful. Um, and then number four, I want to talk about useful thorns. What an interesting... Uh, Juxtaposition of words, useful thorns. I don't, I'm not a big fan of thorns. You know, the tiniest little thorn can really make me go nuts. I mean, I can have the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest little piece of wood in me or a, oh, you ever get one of those metal thorns, a metal little steel fiber? It's the tiniest little thing and you like got the magnifying glass out, you got your phone on high so you can see that light in there and you got the, the special made tweezers and you are digging and you can't find it and it's time to get the knife. You'll even dig with a knife in your flesh to get that, whatever it is in there. He's like, and then finally you get it and you look on the blade of your knife with a little bit of blood and you see this little black, tiny little thing. You're like going, that is what was occupying my mind and I couldn't think of anything else. And then Paul had one of those. And he called it a thorn in the flesh. Um, Paul had many reasons to be conceited. So God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. He didn't like it, and three times he begged to be delivered from it. Three times God said no, and Paul moved forward, entrusting the purpose and longevity of it to God. It's like, Lord God, I, I don't like it. I've asked you to remove it. You haven't, and so I'm just going to go forward. D does anybody, you guys look pretty smart. Uh, some of you do. And I think some of you might know where Paul got this from. You ever heard of anybody else that had a, a thorn or maybe a piece of wood bigger than a thorn, a cross, that was so burdensome that even the Son of God said, Father, would you remove this thorn, this cross, so heavy that my flesh does not want to bear it? but not my will, but your will be done. Yeah, Paul didn't invent this strategy. He got it from his master and he learned it from God. Are, have you learned anything from God about thorns? Or you're like still, no, I'm in elementary school. Get rid of this thorn. Help, call a doctor. Give me some meds. Help, help. You can't focus on anything else because all you can think about is getting rid of that thorn and maybe God is just waiting for you to say, 
to add to your request, not my will, but yours be done. God will allow and even send unpleasant things into our lives in order to build our faith, bring us to salvation, remind us of our great need for Him, make us turn from a harmful path, discipline us, take us deeper in our walk, display His power to others who might be watching, call us to learn more about trust and prayer, and to keep us from becoming prideful and independent. Clearly, there are things we learn about God we would never learn if everything went the way we would like. I've never met a Christian who is strong in their faith who skipped a grade or did not have to take graduate level courses on dealing with real life in a fallen world. And the last thing is a follow-up from this thorn, number five, Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That's where we land after all this. And so I want to make three concluding remarks or applications for you, three challenges. Is there something in your life that God might have put there that He wants to use for some spiritual good but is waiting for you to fully surrender it into His care? Is there something designed by God to do you good but you can't believe that it's good and therefore you haven't surrendered to God's purpose with it? And if so, then today that's what I want you to do. I want you to say, Lord God, be it your will Would you remove this affliction? But be it your will. Would you help me to walk through it? Will you give me the grace to walk through it and learn the lesson I'm supposed to learn? And I want you to do that today. Number two, a second option for some of you. Do you have a tendency to think you're more important to the success of some ministry or situation that is actually the truth? You see yourself as vital, clever, better, essential, And others should just listen to you and let you lead. And this is pride. Would you call it by its proper name and confess it to God and ask for forgiveness and see yourself as weak and God is strong? Would you lower yourself into the proper position so that you can see God? And maybe some of you, some of us, need to ask God, forgive me for my pride that elevates me in my mind above others and just ask him forgive me of my pride oh God and number three is there anyone interested here and ready to become a Christian because you are mindful of how Christ suffered on the cross to atone for your sin but today you're ready to acknowledge your sin and to ask that his death might cover your transgressions so perhaps today You can say for the first time, Lord, I know what you did for sinners. But today, I want to appropriate that. Apply that to my case. Will you pardon my sins on the basis of Jesus' righteous death and powerful resurrection? If so, then that's what I want you to do. Three things. 
if you've got pride and you need to deal with it. Um, what's the other? Um, surrendering to some purpose in God's life that you're trying to run through without learning. And lastly, if there's anyone here today that would like to call upon the Lord and say, Lord God, I'm just ready for you to be my Savior. And those are the three things that I want you to do as we sing our closing song. Father, we thank you this day that you are full of mercy and that your goodness is infinite. And we also thank you, God, for helping us. The Bible helps us to see things in a way that we don't naturally see. And one of those things is trying to understand all the twists and turns of our lives and that you have ordained these things that we might grow in our faith and that people might come to faith. Help us to respond even this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen.